Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Approximately 30 million people in the United States do not have health insurance and risk financial ruin simply by getting sick. Although they can always visit the emergency room, the costs can be staggering and getting follow-up care can be frustrating to nearly impossible. Such is the situation in a country in which corporations are feasting on the profits to be made off the practice of medicine, where hospitals are incentivized to use more and more expensive devices and procedures, doctors are encouraged to order them, and insurance companies raise the prices they charge us to pay for it all. My guest today practices medicine in Texas, the state with our country's highest percentage of uninsured people, and offers us both a harrowing insight into the consequences of their situation and a unique model of how to provide them with health care. Dr. Ricardo Nuila is an internal medicine doctor and hospitalist working at Ben Taub County Hospital in Houston, an award-winning writer and the director of the Humanities Expression and Arts Lab at Baylor College of Medicine. His new book is The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Dr. Nuila, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Ira, for inviting me on the program. It's great to be here. So, Ben Taub is a safety net hospital. Although there are six of them in Massachusetts, the state where I live, I had never heard of them before I read your book. Only for-profit and non-profit hospitals. Can you explain the difference? Sure. So safety net hospitals is really a designation for hospitals that have aimed to care for people falling through the cracks of our American healthcare system. So because there are wide gaps where people can't afford, even if they, some people have insurance, their insurance is not enough, these gaps have formed wide enough where some of the hospitals have decided to make it their mission to target these. Now, these, these hospitals, a lot of them are public hospitals, but some are nonprofit and some are even for-profit. And, and the reason is because those nonprofit and for-profits have found that some of the people who are falling through the crap to the cracks can actually qualify for a health insurance from the government and then they would get recompensated through those insurances. So you tell us that Ben Taub Hospital spends less than half the national average per patient and yet gives excellent care. How is it possible to do that, especially since you tell us that 60%, 63% of the hospital's patients are completely uninsured? And that's one of the interesting parts about it is, is that it's because of that lack of insurance that the costs are so low. Let's Let's take a step back. What what we are used to in the United States is going through middlemen of insurance. You know, that insurance company is, is profit oriented and then getting our care at through another, you know, that provides care at a hospital that is also often profit driven, like even nonprofits are, are, are profit driven. Now, what's different about the public health care system in Houston is that directly supplies the health care to people who cannot afford it. So it doesn't purchase insurance. It's not an insurance. And the hospital itself has a budget where it is not profit driven. 
And so what you have is far less costs. And they, and also what you have is a focus on the you know guidelines that are set forth on how to help people. So it's not about trying to derive profit by doing extra exams, extra studies. It's more about, well, if there's a heart attack, let's treat the heart attack really well. Let's do what we can to focus on those major problems. And that's why we get good outcomes at much less cost. So Ben Taub is actually funded by property taxes. Is that right? I Correct. Mean, that's, that's unheard of back east. Hospitals don't get funded by property taxes. How did that happen? Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible story, actually. So in the 1960s, the, there was one charity hospital in Houston, Texas, to care for the people who couldn't afford health care. And at that time, it was mostly African-Americans and, and some immigrants who had to go to a hospital named Jefferson Davis. I'll, I'll just let that sit with everybody. Jefferson Davis Hospital. We get it. Which was provided, <laughs> which was provided um, the health care for the African-American pop community here in Houston. And as a charity hospital, really there were only two entities who gave toward the hospital, and it was the county and the city and each of them wanted to dump the responsibility on the other and so there were wars and about you know who should pay for what at the end of the day the hospital was left with so few so little money that it was understaffed and there were started to become horror stories coming out of this hospital about how people would sit in their filth and and they and and and, and they would be in in wards for days at a time uncared for well what happened was that it's it was houston texas in the 1960s and it so happened that a creative writing professor now he was also a dutch he was a, a nazi resistance fighter dutch war hero ship captain who decided he was also a playwright and novelist who came to Houston as part of his Quaker faith he wanted to volunteer at this hospital and when he volunteered he saw those conditions he wrote op-eds the op-eds got attention and he wrote a book about it and at the end of the day this became a civic issue that the people of Houston Texas decided to fund a what was called a hospital district or what became a public health care system for the city so that property taxes were used to care for anybody who could not afford health care in the city. Throughout the book, you use your father's story as an example of what has happened to doctors in the last few decades, how dedicated and compassionate professionals have been squeezed and exploited by the business of medicine in this country. Can you tell us about your dad? How the joy he took in his profession turned to bitterness? Yeah, you know, that's something that I had to really reflect on and, 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 and kind of identif really identify that this was a part of my experience and his experience, this change. Because when I grew up, I love, you know, in, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and in the early 80s. I would go to the hospital with my dad every weekend and I would sit in the doctor's lounge and 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 I I saw such joy that my dad had. It was his identity. He wore he was an OB/GYN, and uh, he had so much pride in being a doctor, and it was a vocation to him. 
But over the course of the next 20 years, by the time I was applying to medical school, I there was a change, which was that he started to get beaten down by this system. He was a private practice doctor, and the insurance uh, difficulties that he had with health insurance really started to wear on him. You know, he started his practice in Houston with uh, just three, just two other two employees, a nurse and a receptionist. His practice grew, but the proportion of people who had to go in to, to deal with these problems was really out of, you know, it really blew my mind when I looked at it. He had to dedicate three employees purely to just calling insurance companies. And so when reflecting back on it, I saw that, like, you know, that he was he was bitter toward medicine by the time I was going to medical school. He did not. You know, he, he, he only talked about the insurance companies and how they would not uh, compensate him about the fight. And, and so that initial love of medicine really had dwindled down by the time that he um, by, by the time that I was really applying to medical school. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the impacts of living in a country in which healthcare is big business. My guest is Dr. Ricardo Nuila. His new book is the People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Dr. Nuila, the book talks about the practice of dumping patients. That is, when a hospital mm -hmm. capable of providing medical care transfers a patient to another facility. Um, this was discouraged, you tell us in the book, by the passage of the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which actually meant the doctors couldn't turn away patients or they'd lose accreditation. Well, this law, although this law established the right to hospital care, it also created chaos. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, in the in the early eighties, it, it became practice that uh, the private hospitals for in caring for the uninsured would uh, would decide to transfer them to public hospitals, and sometimes at really bad times, and and people actually died during these transfers, and so it became clear in in, in Texas and then in the in the in the, in the rest of the, of the country that to uh, to protect these people, a law needed to be passed, and that was the Emergency Treatment and Labor Act, which gave it gave everybody in the United States the right, even if you're not a citizen, you're not a resident, if you don't have insurance, you still have the right to go to the emergency room to have an exam and to have stabilizing treatment. But what it didn't bring was a compensation schedule or a way of paying for this. It was just a, you know, a right that was given and now the, the hospitals and also the doctors had to figure out if they had to give care for free and what that would do. Now, you know, I, what's, what's happened since then is, is that the law is, 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 you know, hospitals and doctors really think about the law quite a bit and, and they, and, and they have to follow the law, but, but there's still the debate as to uncompensated care. And so many, many like funds have had to be, created in order to help hospitals who care for the uninsured. To me, this is just an example of the patchwork we have of our healthcare system. Our healthcare system wasn't created, wasn't a thought out plan. It's patchwork, patchwork upon patchwork. And 
that was one of the biggest patches that we decided because we are unwilling to give universal basic health care to everybody in the in, in in the country we had to have this patchwork and and now we're dealing with the consequences of it you address something in the book that we're all uncomfortably aware of as soon as we're admitted to the hospital especially emergency rooms and it's the first time I've ever actually seen it addressed, and that is the loss of our privacy. Can you talk yes. about the fact that private and semi-private rooms are a relatively recent development in hospitals, but you tell us they may not equate to better care? Yes. Um, so, you know, if we if we go back, we could see that the... the Healthcare in in the in the 1800s, even uh, going into the early 1900s, was usually performed at the home. Um, people people would pay for a doctor, and the doctor would go to the home. But as as the technological advances occurred, and the machinery needed to be centralized in the hospital, that's when the care switched to the hospital. Before that, the hospital was kind of a place for people who were um, who, who didn't have the money to, to be to to, have, to receive care at home well when uh, when it became more exp- when the middle class and, and the wealthy needed health care it started to become more private and and that developed even more so with the the, the development of insurance in the United States which started in the 1920s and uh, late 1920s and, and stretched into the 1960s. The thing is with with and, and, and there was a clear incentive that, you know, if people were paying for for this through health insurance or if, if you know, throughout a pocket for some of them. But um, if you could charge more for a private room, then that would be that was a clear incentive from the hospitals. That was always the the, the driver. However, you know, some of the you know, when when some of the studies that showed like how patients received care in open wards when before this major move to private rooms showed that like in, in, in these large wards, mortality really went down. And the reason was because nurses and doctors could actually look at their patients and keep an eye on them and make sure that they were safe. This was championed by none other than Florence Nightingale, who developed a Nightingale ward uh, in the during the time of the Crimean War and showed that those statistics. So, at the end of the, what we found is is that like in the United States, there's been a clear sort of drive toward more privacy because of the financial incentives, even though it it may not actually have um, the evidence behind it to support it. It makes perfect sense. You're in a little cubicle. The nurses are all, uh, especially at night, the nurses are all in the middle someplace. Um, mm-hmm. Even when your buzzers go off and stuff, you, 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 it's really difficult to get some help when you, when you need it. Whereas with an open ward, they can hear every sneeze, as you say, every cough, every wheeze. Yes. I mean, that's one of – so, you know, this book is, is, is a, a lot of my – thoughts about why I like my job at the public healthcare system, what are, and, you know, even though I can see some of the differences in public healthcare versus in the private healthcare system. And one of those was this large ward in the emergency ward, in the emergency room of, of Bentop Hospital, where a lot of patients were in the holding area. 
and I knew when, you know, I would, I would, as a professor and as a teacher, I would take some people through the emergency room to look and I could see that they were rather shocked by it. But, um, but you're right. I think it takes a little bit of time to understand that there is method to that. And there's, and, and there is something to be said for the oversight of people. Um, I think also in, in anecdotally, I think that, you know, people who are left in their own rooms can just wait there for a long, a, a, a bit longer. If you're, if it, it gives you a sense when you're working in the emergency room of like how to, you know, how to triage constant surveillance and also get people moving to the appropriate places that they have to go from there. You introduce us in the book to a guy you call the cowboy doctor, a man named <laughs> Robert Graham, who was treating a young man with diabetes named Sam. Now, Dr. Yes. Graham wanted to treat Sam's diabetes long term and kept him in Ben Taub Hospital an extra two days, which is anathema to, to hospitals, as we know. They want to get you out as quick as possible. Now, a nonprofit or, or a for-profit hospital would not have allowed this. And you tell us the administration would simply have ordered Dr. Graham off the case and signed up Sam with another more compliant doctor. Is that how it works? How patients without insurance get discharged without even knowing why? That's what my colleagues who have worked at. Um, other, so my experience has only been at the public health care hospital as an attending. As a, as a resident, I did rotate through multiple private hospitals. But my colleagues, I have many colleagues who work with me, and, and that's what they've had the experience of patients being basically uh, taken from them because they're part of a group and there is a, a you know a head of that group and that group that head um, is might give a phone call to be like hey you need to be maybe discharging this person who has a COPD exacerbation or whatever it is whatever medical ailment is the patient's hospitalized for and and the doctor might say well I think he needs a little bit more time but then the head of the you know the, that head might call later. Well, what about now? What about now? And then, you know, what you'd find later on in the day that, well, we just took them off your list so you don't have to worry about it, you know? So there are, you know, it, it's a demonstration too that there is just, there's multiple players coming together to orchestrate this, you know, to, to assure that the, this run the wheels of like, you know, extracting money and making sure that everything is 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 is, is um, running efficiently for uh, hospital seeking profit works. And um, unfortunately, I don't think that this is the case because I know so many people who don't feel like this and and aren't really don't practice like this. But unfortunately, doctors have a hand in this too. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about big business and American health care. My guest is Dr. Ricardo Nuila. His new book is The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Dr. Nuila, a lot of people where we live and I think around the country find it almost impossible to get a primary care doctor. Their primary care doctor retires and... You know, they have a very well-meaning PA or nurse practitioner, but it's almost impossible now. What is going on and how worrisome is this to you? It's worrisome. I think it's uh, it's a product of our 
system that incentivizes doing more and uh, with uh, and, 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 and instead of keeping the patient uh, healthy, I mean, none other than President Nixon referred to this as the illogical incentive of our healthcare system, which is fee for service, which meaning that we're we, we base the finances of our healthcare system with uh, doctors being able to charge for every service that's provided. Now, I mean, Obamacare tried to curtail that a bit, but it's still very dominant. Um, I'm, and, and I think so, you know, this, the, the, the lack of primary care doctors is, is, is in many regards because, because of that, you know, because there's just more incentives to uh, provide more care and special, specialists can do that versus primary care doctors. Um, I think that primary care doctors are also leaving the profession for a lot of other reasons, including um, including that um, th- there's just burnout too. There's a lot of doctors who are demoralized and who feel and who feel like um, they're um, uh, they, they don't want to practice the way that American medicine makes them practice. And so you we we're seeing we're going to see already a dearth of doctors going forward, but. With people with doctors leaving the profession, it's going to get worse. That disparity. The book makes it very clear that a life without health insurance is the cause for many illnesses going down the road. Among various patients whose stories illustrate this fact is a very courageous woman who you call Roxana. Can you tell us yes. about her and how her problems just kept piling up because she had no insurance? Yes. Well, Roxana is, and, and just to let you know, every patient gave me permission to use their name and, uh, and, and to disclose their medical information. They gave written authorization. So Rox, uh, there's no pseudonyms used in this book for the, for the, for, for the major patients. And Roxana was a person who was an immigrant from El Salvador, same country from which my parents immigrated. She came without uh, documents in the 90s. She said she walked across the border at that time. And like so many people in in Houston, Texas, she found a job the next day. And she actually ended up working at Saks Fifth Avenue, where she had health insurance for a while. Through twists and turns of life, she ended up as a caretaker for the infirmed of the wealthy. So she would be a caretaker for demented patients who lived in wealthy neighborhoods and whatnot, but she didn't have health insurance. And then, you know, when she was in her fifties, she started to develop belly pain and vomiting. She didn't have health insurance. So she had to, you know, she, she decided to ignore it. Uh, And then what she found was like that she had to go to the emergency room one day. Actually what happened was that her bet, one of her best friends after not having seen her for nine months, laid eyes on her, and said immediately, I have to take you to the emergency room now. You look awful. So she took her, and what was discovered was that there was this tumor arising from the one of the major blood vessels of the, of the body, the inferior vena cava, that wrapped around her uh, heart, causing her to have heart failure. It also blocked certain passages in her liver. And so she was in an emergency condition. This is... Uh, a, because of the heart failure this tumor was causing now the um now this is important designation because 
hospitals and doctors can tap into funds called emergency Medicaid to provide health care in emergency situations like that. And she happened to be in Houston, Texas, where I kid you not, the best heart surgeon for these kinds of tumors in the world practice. And so she ended up receiving this uh, surgery uh, after being transferred to have the surgery um, for the for the uh, for the tumor. But during the surgery, she suffered an awful complication. It's rare, but it, it happens because she was connected to the cardiopulmonary uh, bypass machine where, you know, on, upon incising the tumor, it released mole- uh, molecules or cytokines that made her the circulation to her arms and legs clamp down to divert all the blood to her vital organs to keep them safe. And when it clamped down, she what happened was is that her legs and arms didn't get circulation throughout the uh, throughout the surgery. And when she awoke after a coma of a week, she found that her legs and arms were dead. They were they were starting to dry gangrene. Now. The, the terrible part is is that she she her life was saved. It was a moonshot, and it was incredible. This is one of the great things that the American medical system can do. It can prepare a surgeon to do such great feats. But that she changed from an emergency condition to a chronic condition because now she was no longer in heart failure. Now she had dry gangrene, which wouldn't wasn't a threat to her life. The hospital and doctors couldn't tap into that fund anymore and so they had to discharge her home with dead limbs she wanted desperately to have these limbs amputated to start on a new life possibly prosthetics try to figure but she couldn't with these dead limbs but the hospital didn't really have a plan for her she even said what am i supposed to do just uh, you know and the and the doctors said you just let them fall off these dead arms and she would raise her arms and say, "You mean like the branches of a, a, a dead branches of a tree fall off?" And that was that was the problem that they sent her home like that. And um, it, it was indicative to me, almost allegorical, that you know this healthcare system we can perform moonshots, we can incentivize moonshots even, but we can't take care of like you know the care that people need to thrive around their day, which doesn't actually need that much. And the amputations were involved but they didn't it wasn't the same level of complexity of 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 the tumor for instance okay we're running out of time and this is our last question talk about why you feel optimistic about health care in america it has to do with people coming together how the community unites to help people who are suffering yeah i feel optimistic because of where i work and like the people that I work around, we're part of a mission-driven public health care system, and the mission is to provide for the most vulnerable and to utilize the resources we have. And I feel like it's liberating for me to do that because I can focus on health care and medicine. I can I can sit with, you know, for instance, there's a patient cap on what I, I, I see 15 patients a day max, and, you know, people who do my job can admit as many as 24 overnight or have in the 20s. And so I feel like I can, you know, um, because of this public system that the people work in and I can 
perform the type of medicine that I want to perform in. And it's I'm surrounded by people who care about the same thing, which is that, you know, yes, we want to make a living off of off of being doctors, but we don't it's not about money. It's about the care of the people and the individuals. And, you know, healthcare in America is so much about that money that a lot of people can, you know, that, that, that people can get dragged into that. I feel optimistic because this, this system where I work in can be a model for, 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 for other places. And I feel like if we can end this model, then maybe this can be the first step toward reshaping healthcare in America. Okay, we'll end it there. Thank you so much for talking with us. Today we've been talking about our dysfunctional healthcare system and its impact on the uninsured. My guest has been Dr. Ricardo Nuila. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. The People's Hospital is really a great read, and it was recently published by Scribner. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on Medicine Incorporated, one interview at a time. Bye for now.